Welcome everybody back to another Health Mastery Show episode. Uh, today I have on with me Dr. Bill Campbell. So Bill is one of the leading physique scientists. He's a professor of exercise science and director of the Performance and Physique Enhancement Lab at the University of South Florida. He has published over 200 papers and is a published author as well. And in today's episode, we get into flexible versus rigid dieting and some of the research that Bill has done in his lab with along with some of his graduate students and looking at body uh, body assessment or body composition outcomes. We also talk a little bit about the first refeed study in resistance trained athletes. So do refeeds actually help with muscle retention or any other outcomes that will lead to a better physique? If you want to support the podcast, please do leave a rating and review. Take you know 10 20 seconds to leave a rating it really helps with the algorithm and getting it out there and it's completely free obviously if you want a free natural bodybuilding course help to help you get into the best shape possible with tons of free resources downloads training plans nutrition and guidance and advice click the link in the show notes you'll get that for absolutely free and if you are interested in working directly with me to maximize your potential and get in the best shape possible and fast track those results you can also check that out in the show notes but without further ado let's get into this episode with dr bill campbell bill thanks so much for coming on man thank you for having me yeah i've been following your work for a long time now and uh recently actually i just thought about it um hold on my fixing my camera for those watching just trying to get it uh recently i actually bought one of your books uh uh I don't know. I'm not sure if it's a new book, but uh, the NSCA Guide to Sport and Exercise Nutrition. Yeah, hold it up for a second. Let me see. I think that's the first edition, and I think there's now a second edition. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm not sure what edition this is, but uh, yeah, I was reading it, and uh, it's it's good. It's interesting. Um, I think the good thing about that book is that it kind of boils it down and makes it quite, you know, easy to understand because I've got some nutrition books there that are, you know, impossible to understand uh, some of the stuff in it. You know, they're all mechanisms and pathways and things like that, which is is good, but uh, it's not very practical, right? Yeah, that book was definitely meant to serve the practitioner and to help them with actual, you know, things that they can actually implement without understanding all of the complex pathways. Mm, yeah. So but, uh, before we kind of get into this podcast, it would be great if you could kind of introduce yourself and uh, kind of who you are, what you do, et cetera, and your background. Sure. Yeah. So uh, Bill Campbell's the name. I am a professor of exercise science at the University of South Florida, which is in Tampa, Florida. I direct the performance mm. and physique enhancement laboratory there. And my lab has two main focuses. One is sports nutrition. The other is physique enhancement. And Probably for the last five years, we've been very focused on physique enhancement, which is really helping people with dieting, helping them to lose as much fat as possible, but also investigating the manners in which we can maintain or even possibly increase muscle mass when dieting. So we look at different types of diets. We look at different types of training programs and in some cases, dietary supplements. That's kind of the mm. my research background. Mm. That's uh, really interesting. I think I may have heard it on a podcast before, but you said like you funded a lot of this yourself, right? So I'd been looking at PhDs for the last one. 
you know, everything's in oncology or public health, uh, if you're lucky in nutrition, uh, you know, good luck trying to get a research in physique enhancement, especially for people who already lift weights and aren't, you know, obese or, or have sarcopenia or something like that. So, uh, yeah, it's like a, it's like a dream kind of lab that you have, I guess that was something that you envisaged, envisaged one day rather than you just fell into it. Right. Yes. Yeah. My, my dream was to actually run the lab that I'm running and you're right. There's, I, um, there's very little funding. So I've, I've been very, very blessed. Um, Dimatized nutrition in years past has given me mm -hmm. some funding to do some of this research. Legion athletics has currently given me some money to, to, to keep the lab functional and, and, and going, especially in a COVID environment. But yeah, I, I rely on a lot of volunteers. My, my master's students and my undergrad students really run the lab and yep. it's, yeah, nobody's getting paid. <laughs> I'm not getting rich off of it for sure. Yeah. 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 And, and the, the kind of studies that you run, would they typically be on resistance trained athletes or would that be looking at like a population health kind of dietary lifestyle choices and things like that, that would have greater impact, but maybe, maybe less of an interest to what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Most of our research is on resistance trained males and females. And I actually mm. do probably a little more female specific research than, than most labs. Um, mm. I say that we are currently doing a study in non-resistance trained females. And what essentially, if you try to look at all of the bodybuilding research that's done, there's almost none. And there's a reason for that. It's because bodybuilders won't let you change their diets and training that you would need to do in a study. So mm. while my research doesn't necessarily investigate bodybuilders, I believe it's the closest thing that you're going to get to a bodybuilding study where there's an actual intervention because they're lean people generally and their resistance training. And we do have some research in bodybuilders, but those are mostly around case studies and um, yeah, case studies and case series studies where we looked at four or five or six bodybuilders, just kind of following them to yeah. do what they do. Yeah. The, there's some case studies and then it's, it's mainly like, uh, like qualitative research, yes. you know, what the bodybuilders do and I think Andrew Chappelle has done some, chapel i think he pronounced it has looked at diet bodybuilding diets and i think in even some years you you cited the the rossow paper which is pretty famous i think peter fishing has done a few like that but but yeah i think like uh as a competitive bodybuilder myself you know you know there's not a hope you'd get somebody doing my my uh, diet especially if i didn't think it was optimal and it wouldn't uh if someone told me you you know you're going to be in either this this group or or a control or a group that potentially may get you worse outcomes like <laughs> There's not a chance I'm going to diet down for that and then come in at like, if I'm not coming in a 4% body fat, you know, I'm not doing it. So, exactly. Um, and even then, if you do, yeah. if you did get some bodybuilders, you got to get, you know, 20, 30, 40 to, to have a large yeah. enough sample size to even have enough power to detect a significant difference if one exists. So it's, um, and I live in mm -hmm. a city where it's very favorable for body. There's a lot of bodybuilding in my city. And again, I'm, I, I've tried, what city are you and in? it just hasn't worked out to get actual competitive bodybuilders. Hmm. Well, what city are you based Tampa, in? Tampa, Florida. Okay. So 
No, the Olympia is on the, in Orlando. Yeah, that's right? yeah, but it's close. It's only about ninety minutes yeah, okay. from me. Okay. Yeah, that it would it'd be super interesting to be get you know do studies on on those kind of guys. Ooh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I know that you wouldn't even get that past an ethics board because you know the, these guys have special supplements and stuff like that. So um, I think you know Brazil they do some studies right on assisted uh, assisted bodybuilders because it, maybe it's illegal. I I don't really know, but or maybe it's legal. I should say. As long as we wouldn't be providing them, I think it would be fine yeah. if you're just monitoring what they do. Mm. That, that's another, though, massive confounder, right, though? If somebody's, like, using a TRT dose of testosterone and dieting down, then you have another guy who's doing the same longitudinal study, but they're using, like, you know, two grams of various different substances. It's hard to say, well, it's because they're eating a lower-carb diet. they got different results. Yeah, like absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but but today I wanted to chat a little bit about a paper that um, you were uh, a co-author on with one of your um, master students, your graduate students, um, around flexible dieting versus uh, rigid dieting and and the outcomes um, that that showed. Would you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, and let me before we get into it, I just want to acknowledge Lauren Conlon. She was my master student yeah. at the time, so that was a study that she designed, she coordinated, and ran the whole thing. I just advised. Mm. But that was really yeah. her brainchild. She did a really good job. And that was the first dieting study we had actually did in my lab. Oh, well, wow. interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I know that you use the term that I'm not sure if this term has actually been used in a paper before is if it fits your macros. I know that came from, I think, the bodybuilding.com forums. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if it was Alan Aragon who actually coined it, but I know that it, somebody had like repo- posted or applied. I think the story is. Somebody kept asking, could they eat cheese? And then, you know, various things which were not, weren't sure if they're clean or unclean foods. So like, cause cheese is kind of in the middle, I guess, depending on the type of cheese. <laughs> so then somebody kept replying, like, you can eat it if it fits your macros. And then it became this um, acronym, <laughs> IIFYM. So um, yeah, the, and then, and then I guess clean eating, which, you know, your typical kind of bro foods or, you know, uh, unprocessed foods. And would you mind going a little bit into kind of what you were trying to compare and how those diets uh, different were were different? Yeah. So the the first thing is the subjects that we recruited. So the subjects yeah. were resistance trained, and I don't remember the definition that we used. That it was probably one or two years of consistent resistance training. It was also yep. one of I think the only study at this time that we didn't have them resistance train in my lab, so th- they were unsupervised as they did their workout. So that would be a limitation of that study. Since that time, we've done, we've had all of our subjects supervised in our research studies. Um, in addition to that, we we set it up for basically asking two questions. We had a 10-week diet phase, and we wanted to ask the question, what happens with flexible dieting, meaning you get to choose your foods, versus a meal plan where most of your foods are given to you, but they're both dieting at the same rate? Is there, an, is there a, a better effect for one or the other? So that was the main question. And then there was a 10-week post-diet phase where we told the subjects they could eat whatever they wanted. If they were currently dieting, they could continue to diet or they could not diet any longer. If they were tracking their macros, they could stop. Or if they weren't tracking their macros, they could start. So it was very open to what they wanted to do. So in total, it was a 20-week study. 
under two phases, a diet phase and then the post-diet phase. And the groups were separated by the, the independent variable of how they went on their diet. So the flexible dieting group, we just told them, here's your macros. You have to eat at a 25% caloric restriction, but you choose the foods you want with the only restriction being, or the only instruction, you have to get two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. The other group we said, you don't get to choose your foods. We're gonna give you a, a very modified list of foods or a short list of foods that you can choose from. So it wasn't like they had to eat the same thing for 10 weeks but they were given a few choices, but they ha they weren't allowed to deviate from this meal plan. And we also told them eat two grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. And after 10 weeks of dieting, they both lost the, approximately the same amount of fat and the same amount of muscle mass that was maintained. So there really wasn't a, there was no significant differences in the approach that they used during their diet to lose a significant amount of fat loss. So the, the main question of our study was, we, we can answer, it doesn't matter if you follow a meal plan or if you do flexible dieting, or some people like to liberally call it if it fits your macros, as long as you're in a caloric deficit, you will maintain, you're, you're, you'll be successful in your fat loss goal. Mm. I'm, I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a sample um, meal menu plan yeah. here and it has your typical foods of, uh, you know, meal one, eggs plus egg whites, avocado, spinach, plus one whole wheat toast, meal two, chicken breast, sweet potato, broccoli, almonds, meal three, Greek yogurt, peanut butter, mixed berries, and meal four is ground beef, lettuce, and brown rice. So typical kind of typical clean eating meal. So it's, it's very interesting. Did you, did you capture any data on, uh, what the, if it fits your macros, uh, uh, group are eating, were they like, were they actually following a, a well-balanced diet or were they eating like pop tarts and ice cream and whey protein? No, we didn't capture, um, the types of foods they were eating. I mean, within reason, I think we did, I think it was a three day food record at the beginning yep. of the study and the end of the study, but we didn't report any of the specific foods. So in that group, it was mainly just their macros. Mm. So yeah, that would be another and, limitation. We yeah. don't know exactly what kind of foods that they, that they took. Mm. So, so was this something that you were expecting to find initially? Um, I, I guess, cause you, you've had a, a lot of, um, anecdotal experience or, you know, with clients and stuff like that over the years. So, you probably you're probably almost confirming something that you knew right or or was there were you expecting that some you know one would be better than the other i think by the time we ran the study at least in my mind i kind of thought there wouldn't be a difference but i'll tell you mm. early on um i don't know what year but early in the flexible dieting introduction i didn't i thought that if you don't eat specific foods or if you eat you know what we would some what some people would call unhealthy or junk foods that you wouldn't lose as much weight and mm. over time 
and it, um, and I have a PhD in nutrition, and I still thought that at the time. So it's kind of kind of interesting thinking back now, like, well, why why would have I thought that if the caloric deficits are the same? Um, but I did, I you know. So I don't. This study didn't surprise me at the time, but had this study been done two or three years prior, I think it would have caught me by a little bit more by surprise. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really interesting, and, and again, it will really come down, I think, to depending on how those who are following the if it fits your macros restructuring their diet, because um, you can. That's obviously a very broad term, right? So somebody can really quote unquote take take the piss, where they'll just they'll eat just junk food, and I do know people who just eat junk food, um, and but they hit their macros and they hit their protein, um, but they're not eating fruits and vegetables and. There, there definitely was a paper that I read um, where where people were, you know, their people were, I think they were competing for a show or, or getting ready for a show and they were comparing uh, a rigid versus flexible approach. And uh, if people didn't have enough food choices, they were actually deficient in some certain micronutrients, which, of course, as you know, can be uh, coenzymes or cofactors for energy production, like, you know, B vitamins, probably not a huge issue with people eating a lot of protein, but these things could perhaps affect energy and energy output and you know indirectly affect calorie balance and um you know just there's so many different things that happen in the body and physiological processes that it's you know they they may have an impact but i think often people will think that i follow a healthy approach or else i'm following or if it's not healthy then it's bad rather than saying okay well there's many shades of gray and i can still have a a good diet and still eat a you know eat a cupcake or a donut if my if it fits my macros rather than saying well because i because i'm following this approach means that i just fit it with as much junk food as i possibly can yeah yeah it's i i i agree it's um mm. and and now i don't think anybody in our space really questions the outcome of this study i don't think anybody's surprised by it would it would have been great if we published yeah. that in like 2014 Mm. And um, what are your thoughts then on like, say, like, because if you do follow it and if it fits your macros approach, every time you, every time you do, let's say, and I, and I know it's not, it's not dichotomous because you can follow an if it fits your macros approach and still eat it quote unquote clean. And, and many people now do have caught on to that idea of, of eating clean technically, right? Both of them were kind of following a macro approach. Um, but Things like phytonutrients and flavonoids and phytochemicals, all of these things, um, you know, maybe maybe this isn't something that you're it's, it's in your area of expertise, but do you think that any of these have impacts on on phys uh, on perhaps body composition outcomes? And we know long term, like things like anthocyanins, etc., can have impacts on cognitive function in elderly people, and this is probably like very low um, low impact over a very long time. Or like over a lifetime rather than saying okay 12 weeks i'm gonna eat blueberries and i'm gonna you know uh, have like a super brain but do you think that these do have an impact on body composition at all so any of these uh, benefits that are not necessarily um what we say um essential like they're not micronutrients or vitamins but they have these you know other properties that are in plants or or other foods could they have an impact on body comp i in the in the recreational athlete, I don't think you're going to see it. I don't think you would see much of an impact in the short term, as you're saying. 
So yeah. as an example, and this, these are just my thoughts and I'm, I'm, I, I could be mm. wrong. 12, two different people go on a 12 week diet. One eats as much junk food as they can. The other person eats as much health food as they can, but protein's the same. The caloric deficit's the same. And these people are not shredded. I don't think you're going to see much of a difference in, in that for physique in that, in that initial time frame. And, you know, going from, let's say, 16% body fat to 12% body fat. I do think mm. health markers, especially over time from a highly processed diet versus a whole food diet, I think you are going to start to see some things manifest. And then over time, if you're not healthy, it's going to be harder to lose body fat, even in a caloric deficit, if you if you have health problems your motivation to train might not be as high so i do think there could be a lot of intangible elements to a highly processed diet over time but not in the short term mm. and again and i could be wrong mm. yeah i i almost wish as a as a coach that helps the people that it did have an impact because people don't get this instantaneous um you know this instant gratification from eating good quality foods mm -hmm. um, like fruits and vegetables, like you said, it may not impact your, your physique, but it definitely does long-term. And if you're following a junk food diet approach, it doesn't give you the habits that you need to have a healthy diet long-term because not everyone's going to track their macros, you know, until they, until the day they die. So it is, it, it is a good idea to be trying to get these foods in, into your diet. And um, one I, thing I wanted to ask, I, sorry, go ahead. Just add one thing. There is, research on highly processed foods and just how how little they impact hunger like or how little they make mm. you feel fuller so there was a famous study by i think it was kevin hall in a in a metabolic ward study and it was a big difference from a highly processed to a more whole foods diet so just the process of dieting if you're going to rely on what again we'll just use the term junk foods Yes, you may be yeah. able to lose the same amount of fat in the short term, but you're probably going to suffer a lot more in the process because you're not going to feel as full that those foods aren't going to help with your hunger as much. So there is that, what I would say, a very practical consequence of choosing whole, wholesome foods versus highly processed foods in that in, in your diet. Yeah. I mean, when, when I'm coaching people to do bodybuilding, natural bodybuilding shows, <clears throat> I always tell them you're going to have to like fruits and vegetables because when you're eating 1600 calories, you know, you're not eating Snickers bars. <laughs> I know they can fit in your macros, but you know, you, you, you don't want to be starving because you won't be able to sleep or train. Yeah. So fruits and vegetables, not because they're healthy or, or, you know, good for you, but because they're high in food volume, high in water, high in fiber, and they don't have much calories. Um, but yeah, the, the Kevin Hall one is very interesting. Um, and, and one thing that kind of was interesting to me that I wanted to ask was it's not, it doesn't change the calorie balance equation per se, but with, with highly processed foods, we can almost extract more, more calories perhaps from them because I know there was a few papers and I can't remember the names where they're looking at peanut butter versus whole nuts, and the same calories from both but the body was able to absorb more calories from the peanut butter essentially because it was already pre-digested. Oh, okay. um, so uh, yeah, I can send you that paper after, but, but it's very interesting. So it was actually used in favor of peanut butter for endurance athletes because 
you know, if you're running the Marathon de Sable in Morocco um, and you can't eat, you know, 15,000 calories a day, yeah. getting, you don't, you don't want to be excreting calories that you've consumed because it goes to your GI tract, et cetera. So, um, yeah, so, so little things like that. That's why I'm kind of surprised almost that, um, there wasn't a little bit of a difference because the whole, you know, whole, whole process, the unprocessed foods, they're not as refined. So you can't maybe perhaps extract as much calories from them because more passes through intact almost uh, to be, you know, to be visual. Um, another thing that uh, was interesting was at the, at the end of the, the paper that you looked at, there was a, a period where you looked at a uh, post dieting phase. Would you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So that was the other part of the study. So in the 10 weeks that followed, as I mentioned earlier, the subjects could eat whatever they wanted. Um, we just asked that they continued working out and show up for post-testing. And what we found was both groups gained weight in the post-diet period, but the group that was assigned or randomly assigned to the flexible dieting group during the first 10 weeks of the study, they actually gained a significant greater, a significantly greater amount of fat-free mass, which it's not all muscle mass, but a, a component of fat-free mass is muscle mass. So we assume muscle mass. So I'll just use that term. They gained a significantly more, uh, a greater amount of fat-free mass or muscle mass in the post-diet period. Now, does that mean that flexible dieting is somehow more anabolic after the diet period? Because that's what our data showed. And I'm, I'm mm. careful not to, to make that assumption, even though our data showed it. The reality is yeah. I... Don't I? Nor Lauren, the you know the the, the coordinator. We don't know why yeah. that that happened. Now, of course, we were obligated to theorize why it happened since our data showed that. And one of the one of the things that we theorized, and again, I think we're reaching here, but there's data on people who have higher amounts of stress that they do not adapt as well to resistance training program. So we hypothesized that. People who had to keep eating the same amount of foods when they didn't have choices, did that cause greater amounts of physiological stress that limited their adaptation after the diet? Again, we don't know because we didn't measure stress levels. Yeah. But it was at least something we could say, here's a possible reason. Yeah. I think it, <laughs> I was definitely reading something about, uh, I think it was some of the authors that you, you'd cited in that paper, um, Bartholomew that was, that was and the study. Scott, Yeah. Yeah, they, and they have a few on on um, on stress. One of them was actually, and just reading here, psychological stress impairs short-term muscular recovery from a, a resistance training. And it was it was a, a student student before their eight uh, their exams. Yep. Um, they it took them like twice as long to recover from the same the same workouts. So you know, it's interesting that you know maybe you have to do less volume or or they're overreaching essentially. Then if they're doing the same amount of volume. But I'd say you're probably scratching your head at the end of that paper trying to figure out, like, how do they gain more muscle um, and trying to come up with that, yeah. you know, does, does flexible dieting lead people to go and take anabolic steroids or something? <laughs> yeah. Well, we hope not because that would have really skewed yeah. the data. But, yeah, I'm, I, I think the, yeah. the, the conclusion that I'm comfortable with with that study is whether you choose a meal plan or flexible dieting, you will lose equivalent amounts of body fat. Other than that, even though our data suggested 
but the other thing is, it wasn't like they were continuing the flexible diet in the post-diet phase. So it's even then, just mm. anything to explain that kind of just purely mm. theoretical. What, what kind of uh, measurements, what kind of instruments were you using to measure body composition? Was it was it ultrasound yeah. or BIA? In or... that study, it was ultrasound. And unfortunately, at the time, I didn't have a a a device to measure body water so okay possibly it's there's another limitation possibly a large portion of those gains in fat-free mass were due to body water retention um, since that time i now have a, a a very valid device to to measure that so we use that in all of our studies now but at that time i mm. didn't have that yeah so if you match the ultrasound with the like a bis or something you get the four compartment model it could could have been maybe you know, I would I would be surprised, but maybe they they ate more sodium or something like that. But it would be it would be surprising because they probably if they were following a flexible approach, they probably kept the pretty same. Um, but that's definitely interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing that I quickly want to touch on, and um, I've been you know I've kind of reiterated this or made some content about this numerous times, and I think this is probably one of the the pioneer studies again. Um, in the resistance training space was your research on refeeds um, and you know you compared I believe it was uh, five days it was the kind of isocaloric diets or, or sorry they, the, they were matched diets they're both in they're both in calorie deficit and but the, both groups are in the same percentage calorie deficit but one had a larger deficit on five days and a, a refeed in the weekend the others just had a you know, a same calorie, consistent calorie deficit across the seven days. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. What I'm saying there. Yeah. Both. Yeah, okay. I'll phrase it like this. Both had an average weekly caloric deficit of 25%. Yeah. One of the groups just did a simple 25% caloric restriction every day. The other group mm. did a 35% reduction Monday through Friday. And then on Saturday and Sunday, they went, they went up to a hundred percent of their maintenance calories. And when you average that out, it equaled a 25% caloric restriction. Mm. And the, and the chain and those refeed days, they were just, they were just basically increases in carbohydrates, protein and fat remain constant, right? Correct. That was what we instructed them. And okay. the, that's what mm. they, they tracked all of their macros. Yeah. So we were able to confirm yeah. that that's what they did. And, ha and what were the results of this, of this uh, research? So that was a diet study, diet only study, and that was a seven week intervention. And both groups lost a significant amount of body fat. The differences were the the group doing the diet refeeds or the ones that were increasing their calories on the weekends, which by the way, that's what most people do naturally. So I think it's great to actually design a diet that fits what people naturally do. That was part of the, the motivation for doing this study. But what happened in that group was they were able to maintain their their uh, dry fat-free mass significantly better, and they were able to maintain their meta resting metabolic rate better. And when I say better, better than the group that never took a, a break or better than the group that didn't increase their calories on the weekends. So both groups did lose some fat-free mass. Both groups did have a suppression of metabolic rate. But it was less in the group that was doing the refeeds. And 
In that study, we did account for body water. That was very important that you do it in that kind of study because when you're dealing with weight loss and carb manipulations, you have to account for glycogen and the water retention that happens with increased glycogen levels. So we that was one of the, the main caveats was let's account for any glycogen. And we did that by, by um, doing a measure where we accounted for the body water and then that left dry fat-free mass. And that really, that's mostly protein. I mean, in, in by definition, that's just protein and mineral content that's in the body. And that was significantly retained in the group that increased their calories on the weekend. And one other thing about that, the metabolic rate actually confirms that they that they likely maintain more muscle because metabolism is a proxy for muscle mass. So the number one predictor of your resting metabolic rate is your, your lean body mass or your fat-free mass. So if you're going to have a higher amount of muscle mass, you would anticipate a higher resting metabolic rate. And we, we had that in the study. So both of those measures, one was more direct with the ultrasound and the, the, the dry fat-free mass compartment, but the resting metabolic rate data also kind of confirmed that they maintained their, their dry fat-free mass better. Mm. How did you measure dry fat-free mass? Is that biopsy or? No, no. So that's simply, it's a two-compartment model. So ultrasound tells us how much fat they have. And then yeah. from, from that, we, we know how much fat-free mass they have. Then we used uh, bioelectrical impedance. We had an in-body 570. Okay. That tells us how much body water they have. And then you just subtract that out. And now that, mm. that leaves your fat-free mass minus the water. That leaves something, a, a term that Siri, um, I forget the first name of that author, but the, the famous body composition researcher, the term that he used to describe that was dry fat-free mass. And that's really just protein, mm. which is your contractile tissue mainly, and mineral content. So when you combine those two uh, methods, that, is, that then becomes a four-compartment model, I think, right? I, I believe it's a three-compartment model. If we had okay. DEXA and then we measured bone mineral content, then okay. we would have had a four-compartment model. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. And just curious, um, how come you didn't use the ultrasound and the, the BIS? for the flexible versus the rigid dieting was oh, a different lab or no we did use the ultrasound for for our that for our two compartment model so we we used the ultrasound yeah. for fat mass and fat free mass i just didn't have the the bia to account, okay. to account for the total body water so we we okay. we that study published with a two compartment model mm. and um did did you do any psych psychological measurements of like people's mood or how they felt when they were doing uh, the refeed versus non-refeed? I'm trying to remember. I, I don't think we did mood. We didn't do a profile of mood states. We may have yeah. done a three-factor eating questionnaire in that study, but I don't – if if we did, mm. I don't think there was any differences between the two groups. Because yeah. if you talk to any, any bodybuilder that's doing a diet for – like in natural bodybuilding, especially, you're recommended that you diet for at least 20 weeks, depending on how much fat you have, but probably even more. Um, and, you know, telling somebody that you're going to be in a deficit for six months straight, um, That's right. you know, good luck versus, okay, we're going to push for 
Monday to Friday, you know, because like you said, most people still have normal lives. So they still, the weekend's a bit more social or something. But on the weekend, we're going to have a bit more carbs. You know, they can dig. They can dig for, you know, they can push on Thursday and Friday if they if they know, okay, Saturday I'm going to get a big refeed now and I can eat more carbs and I'm looking forward to that. And then, you know, start it again rather than saying, okay, I'm 20 weeks out, so I'm just going to diet for 20 weeks. It's, uh, it's a lot more difficult. So I think that's probably one of the major benefits is even if there was no difference in, in muscle retention it's the psychological benefit um and even in your kind of general population i think having a a refeed i know people tend to want to have cheat days or cheat meals but having a light at the end of the tunnel it's a little bit more sustainable yeah 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 and i can appreciate the just the psychological for myself like i've, I've done bodybuilding yeah at, well one show in my past but I do diets a lot just because I've experimented. Just the idea of, oh, I get to increase my calories. Man, that's such a relief. And it's so enjoyable. Uh, now, whether or not any mm. psychological assessments can pick that up, I don't know. I'm not an exercise psychologist. But mm. At least in my own intuitive mind, it's very um, exciting, rewarding, whatever the term would be. Yeah, yeah. Um you mentioned something about diet breaks before we start uh, start recording. Um, how does a diet break differ from a refeed? And you know, is, is there any benefits to doing to doing diet breaks? I know I think Jackson Pios down in Australia is doing some some research on that. But what what are your thoughts on diet breaks? Yeah, so diet I, to me a diet refeed. And we actually coined some definitions for this in a in a recent narrative review in the Strength and Conditioning Journal. But refeed, think of that as a few days of increased calories, maybe up to two or three days, and then a diet break. That's usually defined in weeks of taking a complete break from your diet, where you're eating at maintenance or even above maintenance for a week. So that's it's just a time difference, and mm. One thing that I've, I've learned, and we've just completed a, well, we're about to submit our revisions for a diet break study that we did in my lab in, in resistance trained females. And as we look at that data, and basically what we found was very similar to what the, the Payos paper that you just mentioned was there wasn't, um, wasn't any physiological benefits to the diet breaks. There was an improvement in one of the eating inventory questionnaires or one of the variables called disinhibition, which is taking the diet breaks allowed the subjects to not have a tendency, a, a subjective desire to overeat. So it helped with that aspect. And that's, that's important. And I believe the Payos paper found the same thing. So that seems to be the benefit, at least in lean people of diet breaks. But mm. my, my two thoughts on diet breaks are, I think a lot of people are, well, let me go there a second. The, the only way a diet break works, or at least when you look at the literature, when they have worked, it's been when people have had a, a negative adaptation or a negative consequence to their diet. So think of situations where the diets are very long duration, like you said, 20 weeks, 26 weeks, and that's exactly what natural bodybuilders do. Or what if the caloric deficit is fairly severe? So when you have those situations, 
where you're going to start to have a suppressed metabolism or you're going to start to have weight loss plateaus or you start to lose lean body mass. Once those things are introduced, that's where the utility of a diet break is helpful. So in the PAYO study and in my, our own recent research, we didn't find a benefit, an overt benefit for diet breaks. But if you look at the amount of fat loss or the length of the studies or the severity of the caloric deficits, they didn't, the diets didn't induce a negative consequence or a negative physiological outcome. So you're trying to put something that is supposed to, quote unquote, fix a diet when nothing's broke. So I think the utility mm. for a diet break, if it is going to be effective, it needs to be in a situation where the either the severity of the caloric deficit is high or the duration of the diet is very long. Without those two things, I don't think you can expect diet breaks to do anything. The second conclusion yeah, yeah. that I have is I think a lot of people will look at the PAYO study or our study, which is going to be published hopefully within the next few months, and they'll just say, yep, these are worthless, like they're not helpful. And I think that's a very short-sighted view of them. They, don't, they didn't cause weight gain, so there's no harm from a diet break. And as we just mentioned, if you're just tired of dieting and you want to take a break, the research would suggest you can do that without guilt and without a, a fat regain. So I think it's a beautiful approach. Now, maybe for com competitive bodybuilders, that's, that's a whole different issue. But if you're a recreational lifter and you're trying to live kind of like a lean lifestyle and you want to go on vacation for a week or you want to go to a birthday party and just take some time off, do that with no harm. Obviously, bodybuilders have a show date, so they may or may not have the luxury of implementing a diet break. So th those are kind of my thoughts after completing our study, where, or at least where my mind is at currently on, on that topic. Mm. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to circle back to some of the stuff you said about stress earlier, I think if you're dieting for six months, there's going to be a period where there's going to be stress, whether it's uh, gyms being closed because of COVID, or are you getting COVID? And um, you know the the show the show date might still be there, so you know, that's perfect time for a diet break, um, and things like that. And then also, uh, you know, even with the pe people who just want to live a, a lean lifestyle, I think you you got to be able to diet or to live a lifestyle where you're not just white knuckling and you're just you know I'm gonna get there. So it teaches you patience and teaches you how to deal with normal life because we've all seen people who've you know, drop a ton of weight by eating, you know, meal replacements, and then they go back to eating normal and they just put all the weight back on. It's like you want to be able to, um, you know, have periods where you're not actually making progress or, you know, at least maintaining progress um, and, and seeing how you fare with your habits and your lifestyle. Uh, so I think, think that's very interesting. And final question for you, uh, Bill, was just in the light of the Olympia coming up this weekend, I I, I really am a fan of like just bodybuilding and um, even just open body, untested body, whatever you want to call it. Like I'm watching some of the videos of like uh, the competitors and a lot of them seem to like have very bro style diets. Um, like they will cut out sweeteners. Uh, they will follow very specific meal plans. They you, very rarely you'll see them eating something that's not considered a kind of a clean traditional bodybuilding food. Do, do you think there's any kind of reason behind that or, or why perhaps they would do, you know, maybe it's not a scientific reason, but, you know, maybe psychological reasons that they're trying to follow something like that. Or, or do you think perhaps there is benefit to doing something like that in those scenarios? I think for the general person going on diets, that's it's 
not important. I think, again, if you take mm -hmm. me, my body fat right now is probably around 18%, maybe 17, and I want to go from 18 to 14. doesn't matter what I eat as long as I'm in a caloric deficit. I think where it could potentially start to make more of a difference is as you get leaner and leaner and more elite, like the people that you're probably referring to. And I'm not saying it does, but I think it's much more likely that it could. Um, in terms of why they may do that, um, it's probably just based on that's what they've always done. That's what the last winner has done and the winner before that and the winner before that. And then mm -hmm. I can appreciate, like you're saying earlier, once your calories get to a to low enough of a point, you don't really you, you don't you lose the the freedom to even do a flexible dieting approach. There's only so many yeah. foods that will fit. So I think by default you're kind of forced into a certain types of foods that you know your body digests well. And again, the foods that we're talking about are probably fairly, you know, the the types of foods that don't cause a lot of problems in a lot of people. So those are my general my general thoughts on it. Mm. Mm. The, the only other things I could kind of think of is, would be that if you're consi very consistent with your food choices, there won't be that variance in uh, calories that, that the companies are legally allowed to have, right? So that yeah. 20% variance. That's the that's one of the things, I guess. If you're always eating white potatoes and it's USDA, uh, you know, my fitness part, it's a white potato is going to be a white potato. Um, if I, I know I said the final question, but to wrap up, if you had um, if you had like as much money as possible in the world, what what kind of research would you like to see in in this field? Like, what would you like to do if you you had all the equipment and like what what's not being done that you would really like to do? Yeah, I th I think I would probably, if I had you know a couple hundred thousand dollars, would be to do a metabolic ward study, um, very similar to what I do now. So give them access to a weight room but just monitor every gram of food that goes into the bodies. That way there's no variability in what they track or what they're estimating. So just, that I, just so we could be more precise on caloric deficits. Um, something that's very interesting to me now is the concept of concurrent training. So you have this bodybuilding lifestyle. How much do you need to fear additional aerobic activity Mm. In, in losing muscle mass. So obviously your main goal is to build muscle mass, but you also want to be lean. Um, the two best ways to do that are caloric deficits and added aerobic exercise. So I, that's something that I would also want to explore further. Mm. And, and just track everything like uh, hormones, you know, everything would it be? Track everything yeah. or would it be specific? specific? Yeah. Cool, yeah. I'm actually just about to go play basketball, so I know the I know I won't be training legs tomorrow, so hopefully I don't lose too much size in them. <laughs> well, I don't. So uh, I don't think you will. <laughs> so uh, where, where can people find more about you and your work? Yeah, the only place that I'm really active on social media is Instagram. So if you can follow my Instagram, it's at Bill Campbell PhD. And I put a lot of education stuff on there. I talk about my research. And if you like sports nutrition and you like bodybuilding and you just like losing fat, then that's the, that's everything that I put out there. It's fat loss, building muscle, and sports nutrition types things. Awesome. I'll, I'll link that down below. And uh, I'll link the papers that we, we talked about because I'm pretty sure both of them are open access as well. Yes. Yep. They both are. Awesome. All right. Great to have you on, Bill. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much.